Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. All right, so today on the podcast, I want to take you through the heart-mind connection and its application to our worship. If you recall, in the last episode, I exegeted the heart-mind connection from the scriptures for you, and we came up with this definition. The heart-mind connection is the interaction of the individual's will, intellect, and emotions. And these respond to various circumstances of life in a manner that either pleases God and brings him glory or does not. Recall that when the Bible talks about the heart or the mind, God is really looking at the totality of the person. It's the sum total of who you are, all that's inside of you, whether it's your intellect, your emotions, your personality, all of that is wrapped up in these words, heart and mind. In the way that I think, after spending a lot of time exegeting the Word of God and taking a look at this, the way that I think this is described in the New Testament is by talking about the spirit. Okay, The spirit of a person refers to that heart-mind connection. It is all that is inside of you. It is everything inside of you that makes decisions, that feels emotions, that is able to then turn and worship Yahweh, our Creator God. So the heart-mind connection is the spirit that is inside of us. And, And this is true, let's throw this out there, this is true whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. Because functionally, all people are made in the image of God. All people have a heart-mind connection. All people have an inner spirit. The difference, though, is that those who are true believers have had their spirit renewed by the process of salvation that occurs when the Holy Spirit takes your heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And you are then able to respond in faith to the message of the cross and to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. You are now a new creation. So those who are believers have a renewed heart-mind connection, a brand new spirit that is inside of them. And those who are unbelievers, they are bound by their spirit, which is under the curse of sin, and they are under the authority and the rule in a limited sense, okay, but this is what the New Testament says, of the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. And that is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And then Paul later says in, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that Satan has blinded the minds and the eyes of those who are unbelievers. Therefore, the result of that is that everybody is a worshiper. Because we all have this heart-mind connection. But those who have been regenerated 
and who have been born again are able to direct their worship to Yahweh, while those who are not born again, who are unregenerated, can only worship uh, futile idols. And they come up with all kinds of idols that are of their own design, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. Well, let's get back into the text of Scripture. I want to go to the passage that I opened up this series with in John chapter 4, because this is one of the most critical passages to describe how the heart-mind connection applies to worship. And we had to go through all this definition so that we could get down to understanding. What does Jesus mean when he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth? If we didn't spend all the time defining the heart-mind connection, and pointing out that that is the inner person, the inner man of every person. All right, that is the immaterial part of you. That's the heart-mind connection. If we didn't spend all the time pointing that out, when we come to verse 24, chapter, or John chapter 4, verse 24, and we look at God as spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, we look at that from a Western perspective, from our cultural conditioning, and we start to define spirit in ways that perhaps were not intended or are beyond the way that the biblical text would define spirit. All right, when we talk about biblical text, we're talking about how does the Holy Spirit define spirit? How does God define spirit? Because God is the author of the scriptures. So let's take a look at this now. The context. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. Jesus is a Jew. This woman is from Samaria. These people did not like each other. They didn't have anything to do with each other. And yet Jesus intentionally goes to this well where he knew that women typically come. Women were the ones who would go to get water. He goes to this well and he meets this woman there and he strikes up a conversation with her. So Jesus has basically broken all kinds of conventions uh, the Jews would not do. And he, he broke all these conventions to really prove a point and to teach a truth about worship. And this is the magnificent convergence of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ merging together to result in probably one of the most treasured stories in the entire New Testament, Jesus's conversation with this woman at the well. How does it begin? Jesus starts talking to her about her life, points out some things about her, and he wouldn't have been able to know those things except that the Holy Spirit revealed them to him. And so this woman says that, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. All right? She recognizes Jesus as a spiritual man, a spiritual leader, uh, somebody who speaks for God. And it's very fascinating that in the text, she says that she perceives he is a prophet, and then she makes a statement as her very next, as the very next words that come out of her mouth. It's a statement about worship. And it's not even a question, although Jesus interprets it as a question. So she says this, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
No question there. But Jesus reads between the lines and he's able to discern that she's really asking, who's right? Are our people right or are your people right? And can you tell me, since you're a prophet, who's right so that I can know whether I'm doing the right thing and I will get to heaven? I think that was her ultimate goal. Like, will the worship that I'm doing be good enough to get me in he to heaven? Now, Jesus responds in a very fascinating way. He doesn't talk about the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, he doesn't shoot down their false idolatry and the worship of the false gods that they do. He could have. But it's interesting. He says, you know what? Instead of focusing on location, we're going to focus on the inner person. That's really how you could sum up his response. Let's not worry about location. Let's worry about the inner person. So Jesus then replies to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Wait a second. It doesn't matter where we worship? I thought the Jews had strict uh, commands to go and worship in Jerusalem, at the temple. Let Jesus explain here. You worship what you do not know. So she was worshiping idols out of ignorance. We worship what we know, the one true God, as defined in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and then explained in the rest of the Old Testament. You worship what you do not know, idols. We worship what we know, the true God, Yahweh. Salvation is from the Jews. Interesting. The man who would provide the salvation for not just the Jews, but the whole world is standing there telling her salvation is from the Jews. Why is it from the Jews? Because Jesus was a Jew. And salvation came out of fulfilling the Jewish law perfectly. That's what Jesus did. Then Jesus says this, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Very interesting. Jesus moves from location to ignorance versus knowledge. Then he moves to how one worships the process of worship, okay? It's in spirit and it's in truth. And then he says, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshiper. Uh, because we have the advantage of having the rest of the New Testament canon, we know that the ones the Father seeks are those who were predestined for salvation from before the foundation of the world. The one the Father seeks would come to be known as the church. And the church worships the Father in spirit and in truth. And you know where the church locates itself? Where does the church find its location? Wherever two or three are gathered together. Now, all over the globe, there are churches that worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus cuts out the external elements of what she was asking about. He cuts out location. He cuts out process in the, turn, in the way that they thought of process. And I'm going to explain that in a few minutes. And he goes right to the heart of the issue. Because God is spirit, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. 
But because Jesus is the author of Scripture and the fulfillment of Scripture, along with the Holy Spirit, who moved men to write down the words, when Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, Jesus knew exactly what spirit referred to. It referred to the total inner person, everything that you are, all of your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts, your intentions, your will, all of it. Jesus includes it in the word spirit. What then do we conclude? We conclude this. True worship is not dependent on any form or any location or any culture but it is 100% dependent upon the spirit of that individual. Now, let me say this about process. Jesus wasn't saying that the Jews had a better process of worship than the Gentiles or the Samaritans, nor was he saying that their process was wrong as it was currently being practiced. I think the sum total of what Jesus is saying is that There is procedures, there are parameters for what is included in the worship of Yahweh. But just doing those parameters, in other words, just following the process, doesn't mean that one is truly worshiping Yahweh. And for testimony to this, go back and read Isaiah chapter 1 and 2. Go back and read Malachi chapter 1. Jeremiah, all of these Old Testament prophets that condemn the nation of Israel for doing the sacrifices, bringing their tithes and offerings, and yet, what does the text say? Their hearts were far from God. Furthermore, if we look at the New Testament evidence and we consider what the other authors of Scripture, such as Paul, Luke, the author of Hebrews, if we consider what they say about worship, we can determine that there is an appropriate procedure. There is an appropriate process. There are appropriate elements to worshiping God in the local church. If you look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 6, there is a delineation of ministries that are found. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 are four chapters dedicated to the proper exercise of public worship. Hebrews chapter 10, 24, and 25 further defines what needs to go on in public worship. And therefore, we can confidently say Jesus is not giving us a license to cultivate any process or any elements that we want to in worship. What he is saying, though, is that if you have the process, if you have elements, but there is no spirit behind it, then you're not practicing worship. You're not truly worshiping God. You're just going through the motions. And you may fool other people, but you won't fool God. So how do we know then? that Jesus is saying, worship in spirit, but not according to any element or any way that you find to be acceptable. 
We know that's true because he says it's spirit and truth. So our worship, what we do in our inner person, how we relate to God, must always be consistent with the revealed truth of the Word of God. So we cannot jettison ourselves from what God's Word says regarding worship. Now that doesn't mean it's easy to figure out exactly how we're to do that. There are a lot of, one of the reasons there are a lot of denominations today is that many men, many well-intentioned men, disagree over the process, over the elements that are able to be practiced in public worship, and therefore they've decided to split or divide from one another. Now, if you were to ask me from my perspective in my studies of the scripture, do I think it's possible for Christians today to come together and worship God with a right spirit and according to the same process? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. But I think that our enemy, Satan, he's very good at infiltrating the church. He's very good at... uh, He's good at misleading people, misdirecting people. And it's difficult because we have an enemy for the church to sometimes properly call out one another. How many of us really want to be as bold as Jesus and say to a fellow brother in Christ, get thee behind me, Satan, when when really bad ideas or ungodly ideas come out of our mouths? I certainly don't want to do that, and I don't think many people in our culture want to do that either. We, we would hardly dare accuse somebody of representing the interests of Satan. So often we don't call out those who may be doing the elements wrong or doing the process incorrectly. And it takes courage, and it takes skill, and it takes nuance to rightly point out where somebody is not practicing the truth without condemning the person as an apostate or somebody who's a total unbeliever or unregenerate. Now, time can reveal that, but it's not really my job to reveal that per se. My job is to say, you know what, here's what the truth says, and here's how I've consistently arrived at the conclusions of what I interpret the scriptures to say, and here's where this person or this group is inconsistent with the truth. That doesn't mean they're unbelievers, but it means they're inconsistent with the truth. So I would say the most dangerous threat that the church in America faces is the manipulation of the revealed truth from God. Right? And this has been Satan's tactic from the very beginning, to manipulate the word of God. And how does he do that? Well, we found out in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, that there is a deliberate questioning of God's word. Well, just because God says it, does that, do we have to do it exactly the way he says? Is there license? Is there liberty to go outside or to go beyond what God says? Perhaps God's holding something back from us. All right, so that's one way that truth is manipulated by a deliberate questioning of God's word. Now, Paul says that there are men who add to God's word. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Verses 3 through 7, Paul says that there are men who deliberately add things to God's word. 
Now, we know this is wrong, but when people add a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and it happens slowly over time, you know, how do you, how do you begin to point those things out? Sometimes they creep in and you don't even realize that they're there until somebody comes in from an outside perspective and says, look at all that you've added to God's word. Now, another way that the truth of God is manipulated is by contradicting a previously revealed and accepted truth. This, again, is something that often happens slowly and over the course of time. It's difficult to notice, but it creeps in. And I would not say that the accepted fact is a real fact. It's a falsehood. But it's been accepted to such a degree that it is a fact. And a good example of this is in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where the Galatian church had been taught that salvation was by grace alone through faith. No works were necessary. But they turned their back on that truth, maybe not totally deliberately, but they were influenced slowly by some uh, important people to turn their back on that truth and then to affirm that, you know what, salvation plus works is really how to get to heaven. And the particular heresy that they were buying into was that you had to be exercising faith in Jesus Christ and practicing circumcision of the flesh. And Paul calls the church out and says, that's a total false doctrine. So they had an idea that they accepted as a fact, but it was indeed contrary to the real truth. This, I would say, is a very subtle form of manipulation of the revealed word of God. And it happens when the church desires to imitate the culture for uh, various reasons. There, there are a lot of reasons why the church would want to imitate the culture to stay relevant or to avoid persecution or, you know, there's, there's a half a dozen other reasons. But when the church seeks to imitate the culture, it's easy for the church to start contradicting previously revealed and accepted truth. I would say the most obvious instance of this today is the acceptance by some denominations of homosexual marriage as a valid form of marriage. I mean, God clearly defined what marriage was in the Garden of Eden, and it was one man and one woman joined together to become one flesh. One man, one woman joined together to become one flesh. That has been the accepted truth about what marriage is since the very dawn of time. And now we have churches, so-called churches, that are contradicting that truth because they say, well, we're more enlightened now. All right, so that's just a small example. I don't want to get off on a soapbox. That's a small example of how easy it is to manipulate the revealed truth from God by contradicting um, a previously revealed truth. Finally, and this is the most bold and outright you can deny God's word through heresy. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3 through 3 talks about false teachers who will rise up within the church and directly contradict God's word through heresy. And these are dangerous, dangerous things. If you find yourself in a church that is from the pulpit directly contradicting God's word through the teaching that happens in that pulpit, then you need to get out of that church immediately.
just don't just leave. Uh, you don't owe them any explanation. Just get out of that church and go find a church where they are teaching from the pulpit that which is consistent with God's word. And there is an admonition as a concluding thought. There is an admonition in Jude chapter 3. Jude chapter 3. No, Jude verse 3 and verse 4. To contend earnestly for the faith. And the whole reason for this command to contend earnestly for the faith is so that we keep the truth part of the spirit and truth that Jesus commanded. We need to maintain pure and unadulterated truth. Truth is what forms the foundation upon which we can actually worship in our spirit. Now, just to clarify, we, we can worship anything we want to in our spirit, but if we're going to worship Yahweh correctly, it must be founded upon truth. All right, so let me address a couple of questions that have come up as I've taught this study and thought about it. One of the questions that comes up commonly is, what role do human emotions play in worship? So if the spirit is the mind, the heart, the emotions, the will, if that's the spirit, what role do emotions play in worship? And how can they be expressed and how should they be expressed? Well, let's talk about some principles that we need to bear in mind first. First of all, theology comes first. We cannot worship what we don't know. See, that's where, that's where Jesus started with the Samaritan woman. You worship in ignorance, but we worship what we know. So theology must come before the emotions. You can't worship what you don't know. Secondly, the Bible does not connect how you feel with whether you worship or not. Nor does it connect how you feel with whether your worship is pleasing to God. I'll give you some examples. In Job, Job chapters 1 and 2, God allows Satan to test Job, and Satan at first destroys all of Job's children and all of Job's possessions. And at the end of chapter 1, Job falls down on his face and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Yahweh. How do you think Job was feeling in that moment? Probably awful, terrible. But did it affect his worship of God? No, because he directed his mind to give praise and glory to God despite the most adverse circumstances a person could possibly face. And then in Job chapter 2, when his health is taken from him, he again praises God. So the Bible doesn't connect how we feel with whether we worship or whether our worship is pleasing to God. In fact, how we feel in our circumstances ought to cause us to worship God to a greater and larger degree because we entrust ourselves to the one who is sovereign over all aspects of our life. Now, another example. In 1 Samuel 6, 12 through 23, I'm sorry, this should be 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 23, David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and the text says that he was dancing with joy before the Lord. 
He was not dancing to draw attention to himself, but he was dancing as a response to God's greatness, God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's power, God's sovereignty, and God's display of triumph for Israel over his enemies. So this was an expression of worship. So here we have a guy who's at the bottom of the barrel and a guy who's on the top of the mountain, and they both are having proper worship, even though their feelings are in absolute opposite ends of the spectrum. So whether you're in the midst of sorrow or great joy, you can worship the Lord. Why were, why were David and Job able to do this? Because their theology was correct. They had an unwavering trust in God's character, God's person, God's goodness, God's holiness. They had an unfailing trust in him. And because of that, it didn't matter how they felt. They were going to worship God. They directed their thoughts and their worship to God. Now, in contrast to that, in our culture, the misconception that we have is that you have to feel right in order to worship right. That's totally antithetical to the biblical model. The biblical model is, if you're feeling terrible, start worshiping God. Start reflecting on his character and his attributes, and it'll change how you feel. You can find that often in the Psalms. That the psalmist starts out a psalm down in the dumps, complaining maybe. I don't like to use that word, but it sounds like he's complaining or talking about the struggles that he's going through. And as he talks those things through and then talks about God and his faithfulness, he's redirected in his thinking to say, oh, yeah, this may be bad, but look at, how, look at the great God who I get to serve. Look at this great God who cares for me. And it changes their perspective. And so they go from being down in the dumps to being joyful. So in our culture, though, what we often do is we work hard to create a certain atmosphere of worship in our corporate gatherings. And without this atmosphere, we're told that we can't worship. Well, that's totally untrue. That's putting the process, that's putting the elements ahead of the spirit and the truth. That's doing the exact same things that the Jews did in the first century, that the Jews did in Isaiah chapter 1 or Jeremiah chapter 2, 3, and 4. You're putting the process ahead of the spirit and the truth. Another thing that we do is we allow unfavorable circumstances or unpleasant circumstances to overwhelm our minds to where we're not able to focus on Yahweh and his characteristics and his attributes because our attention is divided. And so because we don't feel right inside or because we're, we have turmoil on the inside, we think, oh, I, I just can't worship today. I don't have to go to church today. This isn't going to work for me. No. If you're feeling down in the dumps, church is the place where you should be because there you should be challenged by the truth of God's word to stop looking at your circumstances through a human perspective and start looking through them from a divine perspective, knowing that God is bringing you through those circumstances to sanctify you and to 
cultivate greater Christ-likeness in your life as you respond to adversity with a biblical response. Thirdly, I think a misconception that we have in our culture is that we believe that if we don't leave the corporate worship service with some sort of sense of awe, wonder, or positivity, that we didn't worship correctly or successfully. You know, sometimes worship leaves you feeling pretty bad because it reminds you of how big God is and how great God is and how, how you fail to measure up to God's standard time and time again, even though you're a Christian. And so some of the most successful, if I can use that word, times of worship I've ever had is when I have walked out of a service greatly humbled because I've been shown my sin. I've been challenged to improve so that God would be glorified and I would become more faithful. What role then do emotions play in worship? Emotions can be important when you view them and understand them from a right perspective. Emotions don't control worship. Worship overrules and controls emotions. Now, if you allow emotions to control your worship, then they will be a hindrance because you're going to seek for emotionalism over true worship, over giving God the correct honor and praise. And I would say this is largely an individual responsibility. What attitude do you have going into the worship service? And I would say, here's what most Americans have. What can I get from this? Not what can I give to this? What can I get from this? What can I consume? How can you entertain me? How can you meet my needs? Rather than, what can I give to the Lord? What can I give to my fellow worshipers? How can I encourage the others around me to sing by singing at the top of my lungs? What will that do for the pastor? as he prepares to preach his sermon, when he hears the entire congregation just roaring in the sanctuary, praises to God, how will that uplift him in his ministry? And how will that uplift the others who are around me? You see, in America, we have such a consumeristic mentality, and we bring that into worship, and we expect that you will make my worship good. You will do what I need when the reality is God says to the individual, you bring your best into my house with fellow believers. And as you do that, all of you will be lifted up and encouraged together. I would say this, self-control and self-discipline have as much to do with appropriate worship as any emotional, quote-unquote, experience that we could possibly have. If you are self-controlled and self-disciplined to turn your mind to the truth of God, your worship will be deep and rich and will be impactful to others so that they will be edified and built up to the praise and glory and honor of our great God. Well, thank you for listening today. I greatly appreciate all the feedback I've received. Um, I don't do this for the feedback, but it's nice to receive it anyways. If you have a question or a comment or a topic you'd like to see addressed, please 
go to our church's website, www.gbchapel.org, and shoot me an email, all right? Down at the footer, there's a way to click on a link. It'll send an email to the church. Do that, and I'd be happy to address that topic or issue in a future episode. Thank you so much, and God bless you.